Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Uh, my name is Jack Blankenship. Uh, my family and I, we've been coming to Remedy for several months now, and uh, very happy to be members here. Uh, we just had a brand new little girl, and that's the first little girl in our house. We've got three boys, and there's been a pink explosion, so uh, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. We like it. Um, I'll tell you what, let me, let me pray for us. And then we will uh, we will jump in. So let's pray, Father. It is a fantastic and humbling thing to break into Your Word. And Lord, sometimes there are portions of the Scripture that we uh, don't spend much time in, and words and phrases and topics there can be confusing to us. But Father. The grand and glorious thing is that those passages themselves point us to Jesus. And we know that the Spirit that inspired that Scripture is the Spirit that resides in us who have given our lives to Christ. And so we pray, Spirit, now that you would open our eyes to your Word, that we would not only understand words and sentences and paragraphs, but that we would have a greater glimpse of the beauty of Christ and your plan throughout all of creation. So, Father, would you take our time together now? Point us to Jesus. Open our hearts and our mouths and our minds to worship. And we will give you honor and praise. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I'm excited to be here and speaking through the book of Haggai with you, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I will tell you, uh, Fudd and I, we've been talking about this for a little while, and uh, we've been trying to go back and forth, you know, what it was that uh, I'd be preaching on, where it would come from, and uh, I just preached through Haggai 
in uh, this last semester. I'm the campus minister for the Baptist Collegiate Ministry. So we worked through Haggai with our students, and I'd preached through it a couple of times before. And there's a danger in that. And the danger is that because I've preached this a couple of times, it's easy. I could just get up and just kind of regurgitate everything and just throw it out to you and it not be anything new and not be anything fresh. And that, that danger was on my heart this week. So I was praying, you know, Lord, this, this passage that is familiar to me and one that I, that I love, would you prick my heart again with its truth? And God in his goodness and mercy has done that anew. And so my prayer this morning is as we dig into this book, uh, both this morning and over the next few weeks, that God would do that for you as well, and that we would all leave here uh, more fully following Jesus. And that if you're not a Christ follower, if you don't have that personal relationship with Christ, if, if the gospel and the grace of Jesus has not ravaged your life for good, that maybe God in His goodness would do that for you, even through this passage. Now, we are, we are in what I like to call Part 1, the Old Testament. You know, we had to break out the other Bibles. You, we used to have the little green ones that are just the New Testament. You know, we had to go get the ones that have Part 1 in it. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, sometimes the, the, what we call the Old Testament, the first, the first half of the Bible, there are some things in there that can be a little bit tricky and a little bit confusing. And, you know, sometimes it's easier just to just you know, let that part be and then go hang out in the other part because that's Jesus real plain and central. But what I want us to know and want us to think about before we get into any of this is that the Bible as a whole is God's word. And the God who inspired the New Testament, the God who sent Christ, is the God who inspired the old. And in the old, we see pictures of Christ getting ready for the one we will worship, the one who will redeem us. And in the book of Haggai, we have that. Haggai is a, is a gem. Um, and I, I want to be careful how I say this, because sometimes we, we can say, it's like we've unearthed a gem. So it's like there's a bunch of just dirt and stuff in the Old Testament, and every now and then we find something really cool. It's not really like that. It's more like a treasure chest. It's like you're digging through a chest of jewels, and then you pull out a diamond, or you pull out a ruby, or you pull out an emerald, or you pull out a sapphire. And it's not that there's only a few gems. It's all gems. And this one is unique and faceted and wonderful. And it's this little book, 38 verses, stuck in the middle of all these people who are hard to pronounce about judgments and nations we've never heard of and places we've never heard of. But my prayer is that God would open our eyes to, to the truth of it. Now, um, one thing I'm going to have to do and what I want to do for us before we get in is if you jump into Haggai right here in the very beginning, you're not going to, we're not going to know what's going on. So what we've got to do is we've got to get a little bit of background here. And for some of you, this may be things that you know and may be reviewed. And for some of you, this may have never been heard of before. But my hopes is that as we go through this book over this week, next week, and the week after, Lord willing, is that we will understand greater what's going on because we understand the background. So if you will, if you will join me for just a minute, I want to give you the background to the book of Haggai. And then we'll, we'll jump into the text that Cameron read for us. So uh, the backdrop for the book of Haggai is the temple. It's not the point of the book of Haggai. I hope over the next few weeks we'll see that the point of the book of Haggai is Jesus. But the backdrop is the temple. Everything has to do about the temple. It is the, the point that God is using to point us to Jesus. 
But the temple comes up over and over and over again. It is the reason why God sent Haggai. And the temple predates Haggai a very long ways. You see, when God rescued His people from Egypt, and they were wandering through the desert, they didn't have a temple. They had this tent. And this tabernacle, this tent, they carried with them everywhere that they went. And then when God brought them into the promised land, they set the tabernacle up. They began to have kings. They had prosperity. Things were going well. David's sitting in the palace one day and he says, Hmm, I've got this great palace. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And God dwells in a tent. The, the place we worship, God's a tent and I have this house. What am I going to do? And so David says, This is nuts. I'm going to build God a temple. Great idea, right? Well, God wakens Samuel and says, uh, Hey, Samuel, David's got this harebrained idea. I need you to go over. This is the Jack translation, by the way. I need you to go over and tell him a message. And so Samuel goes and, and says, uh, God's got a message for you. He says, You really going to build me a house? I tell you what, David, you're not going to build me a house. One of your sons will, but I'm going to build you a house. And in that promise, we see this another beautiful picture of Christ. God promises that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever, and he will build a temple beyond display. Well, then David's son Solomon takes the throne, and he builds a temple. And as you're reading this, you're thinking, maybe Solomon is the one. Maybe Solomon's the promised one. Maybe Solomon's the one who is going to sit on his throne forever. He will be the redeemer. He will be the one who will lead his people out of their sin. And Solomon builds the temple. He asks for wisdom. Everything's going great. And then all of a sudden, Solomon takes a turn. Solomon, um, Solomon liked the ladies. He liked them a lot. Like he had something like 700 wives. And then some other ladies on the side. And they began to turn his heart away from God. And so we see that Solomon had built this temple but he was not the one we're supposed to be looking for. And so they had this temple, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, shows up on the scene, and he messes the whole thing up. Because in the middle of that, he starts putting things in place that splits the kingdom. Ten tribes rebel. They go away. We will not be under Rehoboam's rule. Two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stay with Rehoboam. And now we have this divided kingdom. And what happens is there's this succession of kings in both areas that for the most part don't follow God. Don't do the things that God wants. Rebel against God and even lead the people to rebel against God. And every now and then there's this bright light of a king who shows up and he does things that are good and it pulls the people back towards God, but then they spiral back downwards. So much that God brings this judgment. The northern ten tribes are invaded by Assyria. And they conquer them and they take them into captivity. And then only a few years later, Benjamin Judahman Benjamin and Judah, not Judahman, that's not in the Bible. Benjamin and Judah are conquered by Babylon. Now this is significant, because when Babylon comes in, Babylon doesn't just take them captive. One of the things Nebuchadnezzar does, he comes in and he destroys the temple. All of the golden things that were used for the worship of God, all the artifacts, everything that's in the temple, he takes them into captivity. And then he breaks the temple down and destroys it. Now this is more than just, okay, their church is messed up. You've got to go all the way back to the promise God gave David because all of this stuff is tied up in the temple. Now, when the temple is destroyed, it's not just they don't have a place to worship. 
Because you've got to understand, Israel is not a nation who has all this stuff on the side and then they worship God. Everything is tied up in their relationship with God. Their kings, their rules for living, their life, their land, every single thing is tied up with God. And this temple is the symbol of His presence. It's a constant reminder of His promises, who He is, and what He has done, and what He will do. And now, because of their rebellion and idolatry, it is gone. And it is as if all of York County is taken up and been invaded by um, the Kansas City Chiefs. And they've taken us to Kansas City. And all of us are gone away. That's the distance. That's how far away they're taken from home. And so now they're in Babylon. They're in captivity. The temple, the place where worship happened, has been destroyed. The visible symbol of God's promises and His presence and who He is has been torn down. And they are stuck. And they don't know what's going to happen. Stays there for about 70 years. And then all of a sudden God begins doing what only God can do. You see, because then the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And this guy named Cyrus steps onto the scene. He's the king of Persia. And he does what every pagan king does, right? He tells them to go rebuild the temple. That's sarcasm. Pagan kings don't tell you to go rebuild your temple. Because when you go rebuild your temple, you get excited about your God again. You start thinking he's going to do stuff. And he can't keep you under his control. But God in His sovereignty moved Cyrus not only to tell the people of Israel that they could rebuild their temple. He collected all the artifacts of worship that Nebuchadnezzar had. He gave it to them. He sent letters with them to go back to this conquered land so that they would have free passage. They would have access to all the timber, all the gold, every single thing they needed to rebuild this temple. Cyrus, a pagan king, provided for them. And we see this magnificent thing of the people who are in slavery and who are in bondage. Everything they need has been provided for them. And they go back and they lay the foundation and they lay the altar. And there's this massive worship time. The old people are weeping because they've seen the rebuilding. The beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. The altar is there. Sacrifices can start again. It looks like everything is great. Then their neighbors show up on the scene. The neighbors show up and say, Hey, all you Jewish people, they like this temple thing. It's kind of neat. Looks like a neat place to hang out. Yeah, we kind of worship God too. Hey, let us help you. And the Jews say, No. This is our place. This is our God. He has done this. He has commissioned us to do this. We will rebuild it and you will not help us. Well, that doesn't sit very well with their neighbors, who then begin persecuting them, breathing out threats against them, bribing judges against them, sending letters back to the new king who commands that they halt. And so the book of Haggai picks up 15 years after that. All of this has happened. They've been brought back. They've been getting everything they need. They have everything, including God's command and provision to rebuild this temple Persecution arises, and 15 years later, they're still not building the temple. That's where we are in Haggai. That's when God sends Haggai and Zechariah onto the scene. So let's look again at Haggai. Because here, here's, 
Before we get there, let me let me share this with you. Here's the reason why I, I feel like this book has such an impact on my life. What God had done for Judah is really what God's done for me. The Bible tells me I was a slave to sin, born in sin. Nothing I can do to get myself free. And God, by His grace and mercy, rescued me from that. And called me out and called me into His family. And now me and everyone else who trusts Christ and is part of God's family, we are to pursue a life that honors and loves and glorifies Jesus, pursue holiness with all that we are. And yet so many times, even though, as Fudd shared with us last week, we have everything we need for that, so many times I get distracted and start chasing other stuff. Not necessarily bad stuff, but other stuff. And just like the people in Haggai's time, I need to stop and look and see that the Lord is good and there's more to it than what's going on. So I pray that as I find commonality, maybe the Lord will show you where we all find commonality and then show us how He brought them out of this. So let's go back to the text. Haggai chapter 1. I want to reread a few verses and then we'll pull out a few things and, and we'll be done. First thing is this. Um, sin drives us to be self-centered. Sin drives us to be self-centered. It was Martin Luther, I believe, who said, we are born curved in on ourselves. Literally, our desire, our thoughts, our everything is for ourselves, not for others, and most importantly, not for God. And we see this in the people of Israel. So look with me, Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. What this does is this gives us dating. This helps us to see how long it's been. If you read the book of Ezra, is where you get all that background material that I was telling you about, and you start looking at these years and these dates of where the kings were set up. This is not Cyrus. This is not Cyrus's... Um, Descendant, this is the next king. This is three kings in. And it says that it came to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, Zerubbabel is a guy that we are going to come back to. This morning, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about him and where he fits in. But he is a key play player in this book. Zerubbabel is the Davidic descendant on the scene. He's the rightful heir to the throne of David. And that makes him very, very important. It's important that God would send the message to him. Because here we have prophet, king, and priest all tied up in this. Because Joshua is the high priest. He is the one who is spiritually leading the people. He's the one who should be directing the rebuilding of the temple. And, and Zerubbabel right there with him. And so God sends this message through Haggai to these two very important guys. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, this message from God is short. It is brief. But it is packed. Especially with tone. Did, did you catch that? These people say. It is not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
Do you notice what God does not say? He doesn't say, my people, my beloved, my bride. You sense the tone of God in the words here when he says, these people say. It reminds me of Exodus 33 where God comes to Moses after the rebellion of the people and he says, take these people that you have led up out of Egypt into the promised land. I'm not going with you because if I were to come with you, I would destroy you if I were to come in your midst because of your sin. And God in His anger because of their sin doesn't refer to them as His people. He refers to them as the people Moses led out. And Moses later says, but God, remember, these are your people. It is not that God has forgotten. It is not that God has stopped loving them. It is not that they are no longer God's people and He's trying to figure out how they're going to act if he will take them back. God, in his message, expresses his displeasure at sin. That's important for us, who are followers of Christ, and people who are seeking to, to grow in godliness and to know God. So many times we look at sin, and it's not really a big deal. It's kind of like making a D on a test. Not good, but hey, you passed. You know, D's for diploma. You know, that, that's the way that we look at it. It's really not good. I could have done so much better. If I had tried a little harder, I wouldn't have done so bad. But I didn't fail. So, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. God loves me. He'll look over this. It's not a big deal. And in God's message, we see His divine displeasure over the fact that people are choosing to live in sin. How do we know that? We'll look down at the next verse. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Look at, look at, notice that. Is it time for you yourselves? God is really, He is hammering this in. He's getting to the people. He's getting to the very heart of the matter. Now, I don't know about you, but my first thought when I think paneling, um, I think 1970s, um, I want to cover it up with something because I don't really like the way that it looks. You know, so you're like, God, they're living in old school houses, man. It's okay. You know, they're, it's kind of tacky, you know. And if you've got paneling, I'm not trying to insult your house. I'm just saying, that's just my thought that goes through my mind. I remember some stuff that I had as kids. Um, but this is, this is significant because you've got to understand where they were and where they are in Israel. It's not like here where we have massive access to wood. They couldn't go down to Home Depot and just get wood for next to nothing to build their houses. The fact that this, this paneling, this paneling was imported wood that was a sign of wealth and prosperity. And I think that now what we're beginning to understand is the depth of what's going on here. God didn't say, you live in a house, I don't. What's wrong with you? God says, you yourselves are living in paneled houses. In other words, you have devoted your time, your effort, your energy, your money to yourself. All the while, looking up on the hill and seeing the ruins of the temple and not caring. You don't care about the temple. It doesn't matter to you. 
It doesn't bother you that God's name is defamed. It doesn't bother you that you can't worship God. It doesn't bother you that sacrifices aren't being offered. You don't care because you got your house. And it looks nice. And you've put lots of time and effort into it. There are so many things in this world that we have to do. I have to go to work. I won't get a paycheck if I don't go to work. At least not for very long. And, and we can go on. We, I mean, there's just so many things. We fill in the blank. But here is the danger. Those things that we have to do can become so important in our life that they take the place of what should be most important. And I think the times in my life that, that I've, I've realized that and, or that I've counseled people as they've gone through this, there's really a few questions. And I wrote these down because I didn't want to forget them. So let me see. Uh, there, there's really or three statements that we say. This is kind of how you know that just maybe this has happened to you. Have your priorities gotten out of whack? Has it been that you are now saying, I'm pursuing this to the detriment of my relationship with Christ. Really kind of three things. Uh, one is this. I'll start growing after you fill in the blank. You know, so a lot of times I worked with teenagers for a long time. And so a lot of them were like, I'll get serious about God when I go to college. Or working with college students, I really, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I mean, I'm really going to get in to my relationship with God once I get out of college. There's really two problems with that. One is there's a strong chance that whatever you have put in the blank there, though not always so, there's a very strong chance that that is your God. Because you will sacrifice other things to make sure that happens. Now hear me, I said there's a chance. It's not always the case. Sometimes there are just things that you don't like that you have to do there. But that thing consumes your time and energy. The other problem with that line of thinking is there's always something else. I mean, think with me. I'll get serious in my relationship after I get in college. Well, what happens when you get in college? Tests, professors, parties, all this other stuff. All right, you know what? After I graduate... I'm going to get serious about my relationship with Jesus. And after you graduate, what happens? Well, you get married, or you hope to get married, or you sit around thinking about getting married. Um, then you get a job. Okay, after I get through this first couple years of my job, and once I get settled in, once everything's good, I'm going to get serious about my relationship with God. And then all of a sudden, kids come on the scene. All right, I'm just so swamped with everything that's here. Once my kids get out of diapers, I'm really going to... You see how this is going? Because you can, you can probably see how we take this all the way to you're in the nursing home. And you say, once I get off this medication. Or you just say, well, I haven't done it so far. Surely God will forgive me. The fact of the matter is, any time that we sit back and we just say, well, after I get through this, then I'll start thinking about everything that's going on with my relationship with God. What we're literally saying is, that's not high on my priority list. Because I need to get all this other stuff, this other important stuff done before I get there. And God is second on nobody's priority list. And when, when I take and put Him below first place on my priority list, 
I've then started committing idolatry. And God doesn't like that. The other things that I might say or other people would say, I would, but it's just so hard. It's just so hard. You know, I think this one really comes in, especially as we're saying, we know that growing in grace oftentimes comes through the reading of Scripture. Most importantly, it comes through studying and understanding God's Word. And there's so many times that people say, I know I should be reading God's Word, or I know that that's important, but it's just so hard. It's just hard to understand. So you know what? I just, you know, I just, I just wait. I just let Fudd tell me on Sunday mornings. That's all I need. He's good at it. I mean, he's got like this, like, you know, the secret book of knowledge they gave him at seminary. And so he understands everything. And so he will tell me, and what he can't tell me, my small group leader will tell me. And then besides that, you know, I, I guess I just don't really need to know it. Again, there's a danger in that. I'm not discounting the fact that the Bible is hard to understand. I know the Bible is hard to understand. I've read it. There's things about it that are tough. But when what we say is, oh, it's just hard, so I'm not going to do it, oftentimes what we're saying there is, it's not worth the effort. Think about somebody who learned to play guitar. Most people, the first time they pick up a guitar, it is not easy. But because it was important to them, they studied, they practiced, they tried, and they worked through until they're able to play the guitar. Anything in our life that is important to us, we will work through the difficulties in order that it becomes easier. And so if our relationship with Christ is easier, we will work through the difficulties. Don't you think they said, man, this is difficult. This is hard. These people are coming against us. They're writing letters to the king. The king has told us to stop. Surely we can't go on and do this. But what has God commanded? The third one is this. I just don't have enough time. And, and I won't belabor this one because uh, we're all busy. Um, and this is the one I think that God hammered me on this week. Um, because I didn't spend as much time in the Word as I wanted to this week. Um, not legalistic, trying to earn anything from God. I'm not going to preach as good if I don't have my quiet time type thing. But it was just like, I, I'm, not, I'm not hanging out with God. I'm not in the Word. And I was like, I'm just so busy. We've got a new kid, blah, 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 blah. I felt like God just said to me, how much TV did you watch? I was like, oh. Man, come on, you had to pull out the TV card. Gee whiz. But the reality is, the reality is, even when we say, I just don't have enough time, we always have time for what's important to us. So if our priorities are out of whack, sometimes that excuse just doesn't fly because there are things we can take out of the schedule and replace it with what's most important. Sin drives us to be self-centered. But here's the, here's the good news, okay? Here's the, here's the good news. This is one of those things that when you start talking about it, it's just kind of like I'm up here just beating you down with a Bible, telling you how horrible you are. And that's what I don't want to do. Um, and God's point is not just to, just to tell you how bad you are. Yeah, I saved you and you're no good, dirty down wretch. Can't believe you down there acting like that. I'm going to kick you to the curb. That's not God's point. God's point is to call us back to Himself. That is the most amazing and gracious and wonderful thing we could hear. 
let that wash over you for just a minute, especially if you find yourself far from God at this moment. That in God's rebuke, His desire is that you would turn and come back to Him. That's good. That's really, really good. Because we have this picture sometimes that is very wrong of a father in heaven with a lightning bolt waiting just to zap us when we do something wrong. And though God hates our sin, He loves us and calls us to turn from our sin and come back to Him. And that is what God does to these people. And that is a good thing. So second point I want you to know is this. The gospel calls us to be Christ-centered. If sin drives us to be self-centered, the gospel calls us to be Christ-centered. And this is good. And, and, and I want to pick it up. It's going to seem like a weird place to pick this up. But, but I want to show it to you. Look, look starting in verse 5. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, and as Flood says, when there's a therefore, you've got to figure out what it's there for based on what he's just said. You're saying all this. Consider your ways. Literally, that means put it upon your heart. Look at what's going on, and deep down inside of who you are, don't just look at it and say, oh, well, I'm not doing something right. This is a deep introspective look at your life and what is happening because of it. Because look at what God says. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Later, God goes on to say, this is because of Him. God's the one who wouldn't let the plants grow. God's the one who withheld the rain. God's the one who never let them get satisfied. And here's the reason why. God will not let us be satisfied with stuff. It's a cheap replacement that does not satisfy. And if you are His, you are made to be satisfied by God and by God alone. And if He were to allow us to live our lives satisfied with junk, it would be unloving, unkind, ungracious, and unmerciful. And so God, to His people, was not allowing the stuff to satisfy them. He says, look at what's going on. Look at your life. These things that you're seeking, these things that are most important to you, are they satisfying you? Are they as much as you thought they would be? Don't you constantly have to have more and more and more and you're never filled to the full? You never get to the point and say, I don't have to eat anymore. I'm done. Think about the greatest meal you ever had. What happened just a few hours later? I'm guessing you ate something else because you're still in this room. Nothing will ever satisfy us the way that God does. And God in His grace and mercy will not allow us to become satisfied with that. So what does He say? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Again, that phrase is key. 
God is calling them back to look at it. And this is what he says. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. Here's what God calls them to do. He has, he has pointed out what's going on in their life. This glaring sin that they should have known about. He points it out. He brings it up. And he doesn't just say, you miserable wretches. He says, look at what's going on. Repent. Stop doing that and start doing what it is you need to do. God calls him to repentance and obedience. Now, a lot of times we hear that word repent. And we either think some weird guy standing with a uh, sandwich board on the corner telling you to repent because you're going to hell. You ever seen those guys? Yeah, I have too. I, I don't know if that's a calling or a craziness. Um, but there are guys who, they will. They'll stand out on the corner yelling at everybody to repent. I'm like, dude, give them a little more information. What does repent mean? Repent of what? Anyway, that's a side note I don't need to get on right now. But we hear this word repent... And what it is, is God calling us to turn from the craziness, turn from that sin, turn from that thing that is against me, turn and come back to me. And this is what he says to them. Look, you're not doing it. You're living for yourself. You're living for your house. Stop it. Do the thing that is best. as be obedient to God. Why is obedience important? Well... We have to understand what kind of obedience I'm talking about first. And then we can talk about why obedience is important. Because here's the thing. When we think of obedience, we have to think of gospel obedience. I appreciated so much the word that Fudd had last week. Because in our sanctification, God has provided for it. Our sanctification is that process of God making us in practice what He's already said we are. And God has provided everything. And we must work towards it, but we work with the desire and the strength and the capacity that God gives so that He gets all the glory. But we have this, God has provided it for us, and now we must live that out. And we never do that in order to earn God's love, in order to keep God's love, in order to make sure that we get to heaven. Because all of that is obedience without the gospel. That's works. That's just me trying to do enough good stuff that God would love me and maybe He won't kick me out of heaven. Gospel obedience says, Christ died for me. He saved me when I could do nothing for myself. I don't deserve anything, but He gave me everything. And because of who Christ is and what He's done for me, I will now live for Him. That's gospel obedience. Gospel obedience flows from a heart overflowing with a love and appreciation for the gospel. That's the kind of obedience that God is calling for here. He's not just calling for the motions. So gospel obedience, why is it important? Well, three things. Gospel obedience pleases God. He says it right here. He says, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I might take pleasure in. Now, I want to tag on to something I said just a second ago. The obedience that pleases God is not just merely the actions. Now, sometimes we, we force ourselves to go through the actions in order to, to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness, as Paul tells Timothy, and that's important. But here's, here's what I mean. 
just doing stuff isn't enough. We must do stuff out of a heart that loves and appreciates Jesus. Because it's easy to just do stuff. You can make yourself pick up a Bible and read words. And it'd be the same as reading Dr. Seuss. Because just reading words is not what it's about. Just coming to this place on Sunday mornings is not what it's about. Just being part of a small group is not what it's about. David got this. Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The important thing is David wrote this after he got caught in an affair. And was busted. Then he had the woman's husband killed. And David says, you don't want me just to go and offer a sacrifice. You're not worried about me just taking a, an ox down and killing it and make, that would make everything better. What? It's a broken and contrite spirit. And so the type of obedience that pleases God is this obedience that flows from a recognition of who He is. And that pleases God. Because we recognize and treasure and value His greatness above all else. And we respond to it, even if it costs us something. And that pleases God. The second thing is this, gospel obedience glorifies God. This is what he says, he says it right here, that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Now, this term, I want to be careful with it because so many times we, we use the term glorify. I want to glorify God. So what I've started doing a lot of times is I've started asking people, what does that mean? Most of the time, this is their response. You know... Glorify God. Like to, to bring Him glory. Like to, to fire glory, God, with the glory that comes for God that we do the, the glory stuff. Stop asking me questions. But we don't, we don't, we don't get what that means. We, we kind of know what that is. And so um, bear with me if you've heard this before, but I kind of use this analogy. I think it, it helped me, and I feel like it's helped other people say, when we talk about glorifying God, this is kind of how it works. Um, has anybody ever seen a movie like... Uh, Ocean's Eleven, The Italian Job, or something along those lines. Anybody ever seen some of those movies? If you haven't, just bear with me. It's a, they're a movie about thieves, okay? Lawbreakers, they're taking stuff from other people. They're not seeking to honor God. They're not doing anything. But when you watch movies like this, these are like the coolest guys you have ever seen. Everybody loves them. They're just funny Man, they're great, and you can't believe they actually got away with it. Man, it's awesome. Like, you know, those guys in Ocean's Eleven steal millions of dollars from a casino, and at the end, you're like, yes, all right. And you sit back, and you're like, what? I'm getting excited about somebody stealing money? And the reason why is that entire movie points to this fact that this stuff is great. Look how smart these guys are. Look how funny they are. Look how good-looking they are. Isn't this awesome and the movie like that glorifies stealing glorifies the life of a thief and you look at that and when you look at that you think man that would be a great life wow i wish i was that smart oh how great that would be and what it does is it glorifies this thing that is not good and so in the same way that that movie would take and point to something that is not good and try to make it look glamorous, that 
is what we have the privilege of doing as sons and daughters of the King. The great exception is God is worthy. God is great. God is good. And so our lives are now built around displaying to the world the greatness of God. Showing with our thoughts, our mouths, our actions, our lives that God is the greatest thing in the universe. And our obedience displays that, especially when our obedience goes against everything that our sinful nature tells us to do. And that which would be easiest, or that which would be more culturally acceptable, when we, through the grace and mercy of God, say, I naturally would go this way, but because God is great, because God is worthy of everything in my life, I choose to obey Him against everything that was in me, you show that He's the center of your universe. You show that He is worthy of a life lived. And that is how we glorify God. We spend our lives that the world may know how great He is. You know, we talk about magnification. I, I heard uh, John Piper gave this example one time. I thought it was really good. You know, to glorify, magnify, they're really kind of a similar thing. When you think about magnification, you think of it two ways. Like a microscope. A microscope makes something that's very small look big. And that's not what we do to God. God is not very small and we try to make Him look big. But think of it in terms not of a microscope, but as a telescope. Because what does a telescope do? Take something that's great and huge and far away and blows it up so that everybody can start to begin to get a glimpse of how great it is. And that's what we do. It's like a telescope, not like a microscope. God is so great, so wonderful, so amazing. Our lives are spent trying to give them a glimpse of this magnitude of who God is. And God says that obedience does that. Third thing is this. Gospel-centered obedience allows us to enjoy God's blessings. Now, we saw there in verses, in verses 5 and 6, God says, hey, you, you've tried all this stuff, and it didn't work for you. It didn't fit. It wasn't there. Every time you tried to, to be satisfied with something that didn't work. And these were things that's interesting. I won't read it because of time. But if you go back to Leviticus chapter 26, God makes a promise to them. That if they, they, they keep his covenant and obey his commands, he would be their God. They would be his people. And he would pour out blessings upon their land. All of the things that God says that he's taken away here are the very things that God says immediately after it says, but if you don't keep my covenant and you don't obey, I'm going to take all these things away. Now, th there's, two, there's two dangers I want, to, I want to bring out here. The first one is this. Um, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is banged up, broken, and busted because of sin. So the first danger is we've got to be careful that we don't say that just because something bad has happened in your life, okay, God's disciplining me because of some sin could be the case, or it could just be the very fact that you live in a sinful world. Bad things happen to bad people. None of us are good, the Bible says, so you don't ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to me? Why do bad things happen? And sometimes it's simply because we live in a broken world. And sometimes it may be God getting our attention and drawing us back to himself. The other thing is, the other danger is this. When we start talking about blessings, um, 
there's some people in this world who under the guise of the gospel will tell you that if you do enough stuff, God will pour out rich blessings upon you. It's a load of junk. It's not the gospel. Ephesians 1.3 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms with, in Christ Jesus. But anytime you take the quote-unquote gospel and make it a means to get rich or healthy, you're using God like a cosmic vending machine. If you put in your quarters, God will give you what it is you want. That's not what we're talking about here. And God wasn't just saying, be good so that you can have enough to eat. Be good and I'll make you wealthy. Be good and I'll do these things. What God was doing in removing these blessings from them was saying, look, you're forsaking me. And he tried to get their attention and they wouldn't do it. So he sent the prophet and said, look at what I'm doing. I'm calling you back to myself. Which is the blessing. If we have Jesus but nothing else, we have more than anything we could ever ask for. And sometimes he grants us material blessings. And he grants us those so that we can show the world what somebody enamored with God can do with stuff and not be enamored by it. He gives us families so that we can show the world that somebody who's enamored by God won't make their family an idol. And we could go on and on and on and on. So let's, let's, let's avoid those dangers. As we, I want to set that out before we go into this. Because what happens is here, we have been blessed. We are blessed. We have Christ. But we will not fully experience and enjoy those blessings while actively living in sin. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God disciplines all of those that He calls His children. And if we are not disciplined, we are illegitimate, not really his children. And so this father who has lavishly poured out blessings on us in Christ, because he loves us, will not allow us to settle for sin, but will pull us back to him. So what do we take from this? Well, there's, there's three things. Uh, first thing is this. Um, we need to pause and examine our view of reality. Pause and examine our view of reality. And what I mean by that is this. Um, if we say Christ is everything, if we believe that God is real, if we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins, purchased us out of our rebellion, redeemed us from the slavery of sin, if He has done that, and that is real, then how can we continue living in disobedience? That's a, that's a big thing. Because there's so many things that are pulling for our attention. There's so many things that are pulling at us constantly that we oftentimes forget to step back and think about the reality of life. Yes, we are here for 80-something years, Lord willing, maybe longer, but we're in eternity forever. And if God really is who He says He is, 
we must have him as top priority in our life in every way. I think for me, this is one of those hardest places because it's so easy to get wrapped up in stuff and not bad stuff. Most of us in this room aren't wrapped up in you know, a string of bank robberies or trying to keep our gambling operations you know, under the table so the cops don't see it and that kind of stuff. But what we are wrapped up in is we've got to have a job. I mean, my kid's got to eat. And I need some downtime. And, and you know, and I spend my weekends doing this and, and we, with all this stuff. And they're good things. Enjoying what God has given us. But when the good things become God things, then we've got major problems. And for the people of Israel, this had happened. The good things had become the God things to them. And God called them and said, no, you need to come back to me. So we need to examine our view of reality. Second thing is this. Um, We need to pause and examine our view of obedience. We have a tendency because of our sinfulness to not look at obedience the way that we should. Oftentimes we look at it as God is in the sky trying to ruin all of our fun. Because our friends don't have to do this. Our friends get to go do this. Blah, 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 blah. And we look at God as, as a cosmic killjoy. Instead of our gracious and good and all-wise and amazing Father who loves us and wants the absolute best for us. And so then, when He gives commands, it is not to tear us down. It is a gift of grace. Because in that, He says, do this. Progress your sanctification. Come closer to me. Love me. Experience me. And I will give myself more fully to you. And we understand that God's commands are so good for us. They're refreshing, renewing, rejuvenating for our soul. And they're used by Him to make us more like Christ. And so our obedience then is not a, well, I got to go do this because God told me I got to do it. I don't really want to. We need to change our view of obedience so that we say, Oh God, you're so good. This sin that's right here before me, though right now it looks greatly appealing. It looks so good. And I want to do it so bad. But God, I know deep down that what you have for me is so much better. And God, I don't feel it right now. I don't see it, but I know it. I know it in my soul. So God, would you grant me the grace to obey right now? to kill this sin and to walk over you. The last thing is this. Take the appropriate actions. Because oftentimes we... I'm not going to say we. Oftentimes, here's here's what I'm guilty of. I hear a sermon. Oh, man, that was good. Man, that's right. I need to do that. I need to do that. It stops right there. God didn't say, consider your ways. Think about what you did. And just go home. God said, consider your ways. And then go to the mountains and get the wood and do what it is I've called you to do. This week, God's pressed upon some things upon my heart that I know 
I need to change and I need to do better about. And I pray that God, by His goodness, has done so for you this morning. And next week, we're going to see these people were obedient. And God's blessing poured out upon them. But let me challenge you. Has God shown you that there's something you need to get rid of? Something you need to fight for? Something you need to fight against? Or could it be even this morning that God, by His goodness, has brought you here and you've heard that God is good and that God loves you and God has a hatred for sin yet in His goodness and in His kindness, Romans 2.4, is meant to lead you to repentance. And could it be this morning that what God's calling you to do is forsake yourself in general and to turn your life over to Christ and realize that what He did on the cross is more than just to help you live a good life, but it was to purchase you for eternity if you will trust Him and trust Him alone to make things right between you and God. So could it be that this morning you need to even turn your life over to Christ? We're going we're gonna to move into our time of worship through music. And I ask you to join with me in recognizing the grace and the goodness of God that He would not allow us to wallow in our sin, but that He would consciously call us back to Himself, cleanse us anew, and bring us into His presence. And may that wash over you and may it lead you to express with exuberant joy your love for the Father. When we're done, we'll have some people down front to be willing to talk to. If you need somebody to talk to, uh, we'll be down. I'll be down front. Some other people will be around. Even if now you need to respond and have somebody pray with you or talk with you, you know, come find us. I'm going to pray and I'm going to turn it over to Cameron and the band. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you... Do not leave us as orphans, but that you have sent your spirit, and your spirit has inspired this beautiful, life-altering word that pierces deep into our soul, piercing between joint and marrow. We thank you that you love us, and you will not allow us to settle for those things which will not satisfy, but that, God, you pull us back to yourself. And I pray for all of us in this room, that even now our hearts and our affections and our desires would overflow towards Jesus and that where we may have not placed you in the right priority or where we may have not been being obedient, that you would move us to obedience and that we would bring you pleasure and glory and we would experience the fullness of your presence and grace with us. And Lord, we do this for the fame of Jesus. We love you and ask it in his name.